0: Reflections on Sophocles' Antigone by Gil Bailey, narrated by Gil Bailey, and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, part three. It's like a time capsule. All you people listening in the 21st century, hello, and uh, we're sorry about the quality of the recording today. So, we're leaving the land of Sophocles, and I'm already feeling nostalgic about it. The play, we're on, we start page 148, and the play begins to brood over its own conclusions in a way. The characters and voices in the play now try to come to some sense of why this has happened and why did it cost Antigone's life, and what is the result of it all, particularly the chorus is involved in this, But Antigone herself is involved in it, and if you you personify the play, you, you get a sense that it's. Groping for some way to come to a conclusion. And what you have is a sequence of the choruses trying to come up with ways of explaining this tragic event that they are witnessing. Why did it cost her life, in a way, is the question. And in the course of this, you get a repeated echo about something that has been more or less subliminal until now, and that is the nature of the inner conflict in Antigone. But so far, the conflict has been seen as as conflict between Antigone and Creon, or Antigone and Ismene, uh, the state and and the heavens. But beginning with this material, we begin to see, slowly unveiled, the inner conflict. What I like to do is go over the material fairly quickly and passing over, completely passing over three sections, but get the sweep of, of of it all the way at the end, and then come back and revisit those three sections that we passed over and see if we can try to see something in this play which isn't very often, as far as I can tell, and I've done not a very thorough job of gleaning the literature, but uh, it's not often brought out, but it seems to me quite fascinating. If this is what Sophocles was trying to do. So there's a kind of mystery and sort of a detective story here. What really is going on in Antigone's mind? It starts off with the chorus. The chorus is is involved in the choral ode and then Antigone walks in and they say, but here is a sight beyond all bearing at which my eyes cannot but weep, Antigone forthfaring to her bridal bower of endless sleep. So what you get here is a picture of a contrast between marriage and death not a contra- but a but an association marriage and death her bridal bower of endless sleep and over and over this is echoed in this part of the play and herself to yourself a few lines down says no wedding day no marriage music death will be my bridal dower so you get the juxtaposition between marriage and death and the interplay between marriage and death and it's mentioned several times we'll come back to that just keep that in mind Antigone has already said many times in the play that she has chosen death but we're only now being told what the other choice was we thought the other choice was life but the other choice was marriage and a whole different nuance into the psychology of Antigone. It comes into the play. The chorus then begins their, the first of their many gropings to come to grips with what's gone on. They begin at a fairly shallow place, almost comic. The chorus says, She's just said, I'm not, I'm going to go be shut up in this cave and die, and that's what that's what I'm going to have instead of a wedding. And the chorus says, But glory and praise go with you, lady, to your resting place. You go with your beauty unmarred by the hand of consuming sickness, untouched by the sword living and free as none other that ever died before you. Sympathetic with the chorus trying to make the best of a bad situation, but to say, well, at least uh, you didn't live long enough to get wrinkles is a little... <laughs> And here they say, look at it this way, Antigone. Look on the bright side. At least you don't have to... Li- see, you know, the Greeks were very keenly aware of the hardships of old age. So they say, at least you don't have to go through that. Look. Look on the bright side. And then Antigone says this thing about the daughter of Tantalus. Well, that's what I want to come back to. That's a mythological antecedent. But notice when she meant it's she's talking about Niobe, when she mentions Niobe, the chorus says she was a goddess of immortal birth, and we are mortals. The greater glory to share the fate of a god-born maiden, a living death, but a name undying. And she says mockery. Your mock. The tone of that choral ode is, you mean that you compare yourself with one of our mythological? That they wouldn't use that term. One of the saints of our tradition actually niobe is not exactly a saint she's more like a martyr more like a job figure but they're they're somewhat offended that she would compare herself to niobe so i take it although i think there's you know the comparison with the the last temptation of thomas a beckett to do it for the, to do the right thing for the wrong reason the surprise temptation that was the he expected three and he got four the surprise temptation was do it for the glory. Do it so you'll be a saint someday. And he had to reject it. Except for the fact that the chorus is so flat-footed, I can't imagine the chorus giving that kind of transcendent advice at this point. They're groping around. See, the chorus has to go home tonight and go to sleep. And they want to be able to get a good night's sleep. They want to be able to tell themselves some story about what happened that will make it all compatible with their little world view. And finally, they're going to be pushed to the place where they can't do that, but there's so a typically human attempt to try to pull out some some uh, reference to the existing worldview that will kind of pigeonhole this event and keep it from being disturbing so the first one is hey you it's not so bad. You don't have to suffer. You're not going to be. You're not going to die in a war, and you're not going to die with uh, after you know great long suffering. You're not going to die with wrinkles on your beautiful face and all that. Well, I want to come back to this Niobe reference because it's uh, it's really the thing that unlocks this in many ways. But uh, to get it won't really have as much meaning for us until we go through the whole thing. Notice Antigone then says about ten lines down on 149. No friend to weep at my banishment, to a rock chamber of endless durance, in a strange cold tomb alone to linger lost between life and death forever. In other words, if she's shut up in the cave, she will not get the proper burial herself and be doomed to the very thing that she was so afraid Polynices would be doomed to. So to to linger in that tormented, limbo world between life and death without the proper burial. Also, remember now, no friend to weep at my banishment, blah, 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 blah. The persons on whom the injunction to perform the burial rite rested most heavily were the surviving members of the family. Now, that's going to be important because she is leaving no survivors. And that's that's going to be a theme that's coming into this. And then the chorus begins to grope again, this time with a non sequitur. A grope for some way of explaining this thing. My child, you have gone your way to the uttermost limits of daring and have stumbled against law enthroned. This is the expiation you must make for the sin of your father. That's a non sequitur. You have been prideful and daring and broke the law. Dot, dot, dot. This is the expiation you must make for the sin of your father. You see the, the nonsense of that? It's your fault. You were arrogant. And it's, your, and it's the expiation for the sin of your father. So, clearly you get the impression of the chorus groping for ways of explaining this thing. What shall we say about it? She was prideful. That's a, that's a stock Greek response to tragedy. It must have been... See, a stock Judeo-Christian response is there must have been sin. The, the, the Job's comforters, there must have been sin. The stock Greek response is there must have been pride. Uh, these are not totally separate, by the way. The deepest sin in the Judeo-Christian tradition is pride, but it's the stock response. It must have been that. And then the fallback position is, well, uh, you inherited this from your father. So they can't make up their mind. So, but the point here is not that the chorus is right or wrong, uh, but they're but that there' there's truth in almost everything they say but uh they're grappling with they're try- groping for some way of explaining this thing in a nice, tidy way. so, if you imagine now we get into this play uh this play by the way, when Sophocles did it, it wasn't as familiar this part of the story wasn't as familiar as the Oedipus material, so the audience literally was right there with the chorus saying, what are we going to say when this play is over? What can we tell ourselves? So um, the chorus mentions the father, and then Antigone, this great sigh, the father and the the monstrous marriage, my father, my parents, oh hideous shame, whom now I follow, unwed, curse ridden, Doomed to this death, by the ill-starred marriage of of that marred my brother's life. Oedipus, my brother's life. So in a way, she has, she's referred to him as brother before, but there's a kind of coming into her own in a way there, seeing him as her brother and not just her father. A chorus comes back with the next version of their attempt to explain. An act of homage is good in itself, my daughter, but authority cannot afford to connive at disobedience. You are the victim of your own self-will. Okay, well, that's the next version. Antigone, and must go the way that lies before me. No funeral hymn, no marriage music. No sun from this day forth, no light, no friend to weep at my departing. You see this constant theme of marriage and death? No funeral hymn, no marriage music. Up here she says, Unwed, curse-ridden. Uh, on the page before, No wedding day, no marriage music, Death will be my bridal bower. In a sense, when Antigone looks out and sees the body of Polynices, and hears that Creon and says he cannot be buried, at that moment she knows that she's faced with a choice between marriage and death. Doesn't have anything to do with Hemon. Hemon's not tyrant, Creon. Hemon happens to be his son. She knows that she's either going to bury her brother and die, or not bury him and marry Hemon. The choice is between Hemon and Polynices. She chooses Polynices, that's a matriarchal choice. But the point is. When she looks out there, it be so beautiful to direct this play as a film, because as a film, you can have flashbacks and various other little ways of getting into the internal. Imagine Antigone looking out over the walls and seeing the body of Paul Neife's lying out there and imagine her she's at the church steps see in her life. she's had a wretched life, suddenly she has an opportunity to live a normal life. She looks out there and what she sees is the choice between marriage, family, Hemon, and burial of Polynices and death. And it doesn't really even matter how loyal Hemon is, because he's not the boss. So in a way she's I think she's resigned to the fact that he's not running the show. And it's not one of these westerns, you know, where the hero rides in and Saves the heroine on the gaffle. But anyway, there's more on that, by the way, when we get to the end. Uh, but just to echo this constant thing of marriage and death, marriage and death. Creon comes in and sort of typical blustery sort of things. He's a coward, though. He says, he, we're not going to just kill her. We're not going to stone her. He, he originally said he was, we're going to stone whoever has done this. He backs off and says, no, we're going to go put her in the cave and give her just enough food so that when she dies, it won't be on a, at the blood the blood curse from killing your own kin won't won't come back to us. See, it's, a, it's a little kind of uh, legalistic way of avoiding this thing. Let's try to make it be so that she dies of starvation. And again, Antigone, so to my grave, my bridal bower, my everlasting prison, I go to join my kinsmen. So again, you begin to see that in the mind and heart of Antigone is this tension between death and marriage that's the choice she has faced and she has made a choice but it is not a choice with that that, that that it is a heartbreaking choice and that's the power of this play is because you see that it is a heartbreaking choice continues to be even after she's made it and is firm it continues to be a heartbreaking choice a little inconsistency here she talks about be re- reunited with her family and everything and But still in all, there is this fear that she'll be trapped between life and death. And I don't know that there's any way to resolve that. Poetic license must be allowed, but there is a kind of inconsistency in the text. Speaking of inconsistency, there's a awkward passage. I'm just going to skip over it right now. We'll come back to it. Right in the middle of page 150. We'll make heavy weather out of it in a few minutes, but let's just skip over it right now. So It's in the middle of Antigone's speech. The chorus at the bottom of 150 makes another attempt. Still the same tempest in the heart torments her soul with angry gusts. This is a way of saying she's a little crazy. And maybe that's it. Maybe what it is finally is that poor Antigone snapped under the strain of all it. Maybe that's what we can tell ourselves tonight when we try to go to sleep. And Antigone departs the scene with her final words, Gods of our father, my city, my home, rulers of Thebes, time stays no longer. Last daughter of your royal house, go I his prisoner because I honored those things to which honor truly belong. Emphasize again, last daughter in the sense of no survivors, leaving no survivors. Whether there is another sense of having written this meaning off, I don't know. I think the way to see it is, from her point of view, the family line comes down. When it comes to her, it's not going anywhere. There's no next generation. And then the chorus engages in its next to the last attempt to find the mythological antecedents for Antigone's situation and we'll come back to that that i want to come back to that choral ode on page 151 152 middle of 152 teresius enters and from here to the end of the play the real thing has already happened the real depth spiritual revelation has already happened in a way and now what we get is typical of greek drama we get the follow-up up to it and it's predictable Tiresias comes in, to, so I'm going to go over it fairly quickly, but I think most of the material is before we get to here. But uh, this kind of tells the final story. Tiresias comes in and tells Creon that he's on the razor's edge and that and uh, he has consulted his bird lore, called bird lore, and uh, Oedipus Tyrannus. The blight is, is your doing, he says to Creon. says there's still time to make amends, to repent. Creon, just like Oedipus and Oedipus Tyrannus, accused Tiresias of being motivated by self-serving ends. And then at the top of 154, Creon utters the final blasphemy and the utmost blasphemy that he utters. He says, let the eagles carry his, speaking of Polynices' body, let the eagles carry his carcass up to the throne of Zeus. Even that would not be sacrilege enough to frighten me from my determination not to allow this burial. That's the ultimate blasphemy. And then he turns around and accuses Thersius of seeking his own advantage, and Thersius finally lets fall the prophecy and the curse. Ere the chariot of the at the bottom 154, ere the chariot of the sun has rounded once or twice his wheeling way, you shall have given a son of your own loins to death in payment for death, two debts to pay, one for the life that you have sent to death the life you have abominably entombed, one for the dead still lying above ground, unburied, unhonored, unblessed by the gods below. You cannot alter this. The gods themselves cannot undo it. The avenging furies are lying in wait for you, and so on. This has its effect on Creon. Creon begins to stagger under this kind of prophetic insight. My heart is torn in two. It's hard to give way. He asked the chorus what to do, and they said, Well, release the woman from, from a rocky prison and set a tomb up for him that lies unburied. Now, remember, Thereseus said, You cannot alter this. It's too late. So it, the word's already out that it's too late. But then Creon is set in motion. He says, he says he'll says he do it, and the chorus says you do it with your own hand. And so he goes out to bury Polynices which he does. He burns his remains and performs the rituals, and then return to let Antigone out of the cave. Okay, as he sets off, the chorus sings this peon to Dionysus. Now, we're not going to come back to this, but this is an interesting, after what they've done, the chorus came up with silly, shallow, predictable ways of trying to explain this event. Ser- a whole series of them, finally, they realized that they this was a sufficiently powerful event that they must consult scripture, so to speak, and they recollect entombment stories in that earlier ode, and they sing the story of danae and and uh, Lycurgus and Cleopatra as possible archetypal antecedents to this thing that helped them sort of put it in perspective right, right. and there's both truth. It both fits and doesn't fit. But it's the development of their own awareness of how profound this event is. First of all, simple kind of maxims, kind of silly Pollyanna comments about how well you're maybe it's this or maybe it's that, to consulting, realizing that there it must have some archetypal root and trying to find what that archetypal root is. Where is the resonance in our tradition that tells us something about this event? And finally a peon to Dionysus, a recognition that it is beyond reason and that it is the more or less voluntary dismemberment that is the ultimate affront to a reasonable attempt to explain. And finally the chorus, in a way, kind of collapses into a, as I see it, kind of lets go of that attempt to explain. And simply calls Dionysus out of the hills. It's time for Dionysus now. We've done all the trying to figure out what we can do. Dionysus is the choreographer, and he and he and his menads will come in in the middle of this thing that we cannot comprehend, and and in the middle of all this death that we feel in the air, and somehow Dionysus will find a way through. It's it's a kind of Again, to compare it to the to the Christian tradition, it is that kind of breakthrough that happens when uh you stop trying to fit it into categories and you turn and it's turned over to this mystery god who is the god of dismemberment and rebirth So, in a way, they've gone through the whole thing from the proverbial axiomatic platitudinous attempt to dress it up into something to the consultation with the archetypal antecedents, and finally to the song to Dionysus. Come, Dionysus, whose name, oh, thou whose name is many. You are the choreographer here. Come and do your mysterious dance around this death that's going on here in Thebes. So the chorus has matriculated in a way. They've come to that then the messenger comes back and and tells sort of tells what we all knew in our bones was going to happen begins with a kind of overview of the thing that what is the life of man a thing not fixed for good or evil fashioned for praise or blame chance raises a man to the heights chance casts him down and none can foretell what will be from what is Creon was once an enviable man. Reminds me of that, you know, the funeral speech, uh, Brutus is an honorable man. Creon was once an enviable man. Now all is lost, for life without life's joys is living death, and such a life is his. So that's the turn of the wheel of fortune. And so he now explains. Hemon is dead, slain by his own hand. Eurydice hears that, comes out, the wife of Hemon, and the I mean the wife of Creon, the mother of Hemon. She asks the messenger to explain, and he explains in detail. They buried Polynices, and uh, they went to find Antigone. She was hanging by her, she had hung herself. Hemon was there, uh, bemoaning the loss of his bride. Creon saw them. Creon appealed to his son. His son drew a sword, Creon ran, and Hemon fell on the sword. Eurydice simply says nothing. She so simply turns and walks back into the palace. At the bo- at the bottom of the page the chorus says, Yet there is danger in unnatural silence, no less than in excess of lamentation tremendous psychological insight, and she goes in and kills herself. Enter now Creon with the body of Hemon. There's a kind of, the same kind of tragic symmetry here that is in King Lear. King Lear walks in with the body of Cordelia, one of the most potent scenes in all of literature. And here you have Creon with the body of Hemon. very similar and realizing that he has destroyed his son. And then he's told that not only has he done that, but that his wife is dead and she died cursing him. And Creon, there is no man can bear this guilt but I. By the way, I have no sense that Creon had a breakthrough. So that this your, your world can come... Crashing down, it's no guarantee that you'll open up. I don't see that he opens up i I see that he I see that he's paralyzed with a sense of his own stupidity uh, but that's uh, that's a far cry from opening up and i don't I think part of the tragedy of Creon is that there's no sense that he really opens up. He simply is a man crushed. And then the chorus finally utters a kind of, on the level of 1 to 10, a sort of level 4 version of the truth. Of happiness, the crown and chiefest part is wisdom and to hold the gods in awe. This is the law that seeing the stricken heart of pride brought down, we learn when we are old. It's a way of, in a way, it's a way of turning the crowd back out onto the streets of Athens with some conclusion to it. But the real conclusion is made, in my estimation, at the Choral, beyond Dionysus. In terms of the chorus, chorus calls on Dionysus to come in and resolve what cannot be resolved this side within the the world of reason. Somebody comes in and says, "Okay, take these bodies over there and bury them, and call the king of France." And and sort of like nice capping it off but the real stuff happens back here earlier, and that's what I want to return to. I want to start with, uh, have us go back to this choral ode on page 151-152. Uh, this is the point at which the chorus is beginning to sober up a little bit and realize that they have to go back and consult the sacred scripture, so to speak. you know what a concordance is? you ever use a biblical concordance or a... Shakespeare, Concordance, well, the concordance is, well, if you want to find a passage, you know, if, uh, say you want to find a passage where well, some, you know, the the uh, woman at the well or something, in the, so you look up the word well and it tells you all the places in the Bible where the word well appears. And I read this, I was thinking, you know, the chorus, these are the elders of the tribe, it's as though they got out their classical concordance and looked up imprisonment and came up with with three uh, mythical precedents for imprisonment. And, of course, you realize it's not really the chorus doing it, it's Sophocles doing it, so you're a little more inclined to take a closer look. But they, they sing of Danae, Lycurgus, and Cleopatra. Cleopatra's not mentioned, but that's who that is. The best rendition of this, or at least the one that's most intelligible, is in the appendix on page 168 so turn back there and we'll get a sense of it and i'll read this so long ago lay danae entombed within her brazen bower noble and beautiful was she of whom there fell on whom there fell the golden shower of life from zeus there is no tower so high no armory so great no ship so swift as is the power of man's inexorable fate so there's a sense here remember now uh Danae was the mother of Perseus who was destined to uh, remove his father from, the succeed his father, remove him from the throne. Maybe this entombment is part of some divine plan. And maybe the gods will break through and make this whole thing fruitful. In other words, maybe it won't be a dead end. Maybe there will issue from it or from Antigone, the new generation or the new heir. Now keep in mind, this is a pregnancy image. Maybe she will become, maybe the gods will impregnate Antigone and new life will come. The next one is, there was the proud Edonian king Lycurgus in rock prison pent for arrogantly challenging God's laws The God here is Dionysus. It was his punishment of that swift passion to repent in slow perception for that he had braved the rule omnipotent of Dionysus' sovereignty. Uh, The story of Lycurgus is uh, that he rejected Dionysus and his worshippers. And Dionysus came in and made him mad, made him crazy, and locked him up in in a tomb. Where he wailed in and, and his in and his madness and and insanity, so Dionysus made him insane locked he he violated the the God, and the god came and shut him up in a tomb, and he went crazy, so they're saying here's another possibility: maybe there's been a violation of divine laws. Antigone is going to be shut up we also we know already that we have some reason to question her psychological stability. See, they've already made comments like that. It's like Hamlet, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe she's just going to be shut up in there, and she's just going to go crazy. By the way, there's a fantastic translation of this. I think it's fantastic. I want to read it to you. This this middle uh, stanza of this coral ode, Fitz and Fitzgerald translated. It's it doesn't it lacks the rhyme that uh, we have here, but it's a beautiful stanza it's in the original it's, they don't mention Lycurgus, it's Dryas' son, D R Y A S, Dryas's son. Okay. And Dryas's son also, that furious king, bore the gods prisoning anger for his pride, sealed up by Dionysus in deaf stone, his madness died among Echo. Mm-hmm. What an image. Sealed up by Dionysus in death stone, his madness died among echo. So at the last, he learned what dreadful power his tongue had mocked. For he had profaned the revels and fired the wrath of the nine implacable sisters that loved the sound of the flute. So at last he learned what dreadful power his tongue had mocked. For he had profaned the revel and fired the wrath of the nine implacable sisters that love the sound of the flute. You can tell they're getting closer and closer to calling on Dionysus to come in and save the situation. You see? That's sense. And finally then there is the story of Cleopatra, which is not the Cleopatra that we know of course, but uh Phineas's wife on Phineas's wife, the hand of fate was heavy when her children fell victims to a stepmother's hate, and she endured a prison cell where the north wind stood sentinel in caverns amid mountains wild, thus the gray spinners wove their spell on her as upon thee, my child, in other words, as I, I try to understand that the Phineas story is that Phineas took a new wife rejected the old wife, Cleopatra, and the new wife was so jealous that she blinded the t- the sons of Phineas with her knitting needle and put Cleopatra in a tomb, shut her up in a tomb. And there's a sense of uh, a kind of undeserved and inexplic- inexplicable fate that doesn't have anything to do with the gods. I mean, it's not a... These other two have to do with the gods involved and maybe there's just saying here maybe there's some kind of uh chance events maybe it's just some at, at least that's what that's what I take from it but it also indicates a little bit I I think the continued groping nature of their attempt to say what happened Okay so now let's try to say what happened Anybody can criticize the chorus. Let's see if we can do better. Um, To do better, we have to see what is in the mind of Antigone. The deepest tragedy here is not the tragedy that's being played out on the stage, but the tragedy in the mind of Antigone. And I think this is... um, I admit to being influenced by, by my current reading of the Aeneid, which is deeply psychological in terms of seeing the inner struggle of Aeneas. I think it's strongly implicit here, too. Turn to page 150. We can all kind of have fun. We can be amateur literary critics here. Remember that Antigone has been saying all along, the gods say you must bury the dead. And you, Creon, say, you have some ideological hang-up here, and you don't want us to. But I'm going to do the will of the gods, and I'm going to bury the dead. She has her theological motives in order. And then she says, just below mid-page 150, Oh, but I would not have done the forbidden thing for any husband or for any son. For why? I could have had another husband and by him other sons if one were lost, but father and mother lost, where would I get another brother? Thus for preferring you, she's talking to Polynices, thus for preferring you, my brother, Creon condemns me and hails me away, never a bride, never a mother, unfriended, condemned, alive to solitary death. Now, we're going to have to come to some kind of reconciliation with it. This. this is a disputed passage, by the way. Literary fur flies over this. <laughs> Our translator says it belongs here. Many of the commentators that I've read say it's, it's diffi- difficult, but it seems somehow we, we can't reject it. Two of the people that I respect most, Fitz and Fitzgerald, who are who have unchallenged credentials in this area, Probably Fitzgerald, probably one of the greatest classical translators in this century. Gerda, by the way, looked at this and Gerda said, "Oh." He called and he said, "Somebody." Gerda wasn't into being a literary researcher. He said, "Will somebody please go out and prove that Sophocles didn't write that?" The problem is that Aristotle quoted quotes from it. You know, so he he quotes two lines from it. So here's what Fitz and Fitzgerald say about it. I mean, this is just literary criticism, but it, it it's important in terms of what's going on in Antigone's mind. Fitz and Fitzgerald say, uh, he, they mention this. They don't even, it's not even in their translation. They just completely left it out. And they're explaining this in a note in their translation. They say, uh, this excision has been made it has been bracketed as spurious either in whole or in part by the best critics the truth is that there are critics on both sides aristotle quotes two verses from it which proves as professor jeb points out that it is that if it is an interpolation it must have been made soon after sophocles death possibly by his son iophon however that may be it is dismal stuff <laughs> Antigone is made to interrupt her lamentation by a series of limping verses whose sense is as discordant as their sound. Of course, these guys are talking about the original Greek. I don't know anything about the original Greek. Well, the thing about the... See, she says here, I wouldn't have done... I wouldn't have buried my husband. I wouldn't have buried my son. Uh, Against the forbidden... I wouldn't have done the forbidden thing for any husband or any son. This is the this is where the critics pick up on the matriarchal. See, she she says, that's crossing over and be joining the patriarchal. You know, that other family that I she says, I I'm only doing it for this sibling family, this family of my parents and my that family, not that other one. If we reject it, then we just go on. What I'd say is, let's challenge ourselves to say okay, let's pretend for a second that this is Sophocles, right? What is he telling us about, if it is, what is he telling us about Antigone? And does it coincide with something we already know? From what I've read of the literary uh, skirmishes over this, uh, the people who say it doesn't fit are people who are, are, uh, you know, Completely informed on that on the culture of the time and and they they say it would have been an outrage to it would have been uh, it would have come as some shock to the Athenians sitting there watching the play too to suddenly hear antigone talk this way i I would say the best way to do it is to is to say why did Sophocles write it, which would be the same reason as why somebody why did somebody write it, and let's make it have make it be him see, and then we are forced to really be. Uh, because of what we're going to do in a second on the preceding page, she says this, and then she says, For thus preferring you, Polynices, Creon condemns me and hails me away, never a bride, never a mother. As I said, when she looked out on the body of Polynices, she saw in her mind a choice between marriage and death. She said, I'm either gonna to have to bury Polynices or marry Hemoth. That's the choice before me. To bury Polynices or marry Hemoth. It it the, the Niobe reference is I think the the deep psychological insight into into Antigone. And she's const- so here she's constantly talking about marriage and death, and she's constantly talking about and now she's talking about never a mother. And when she says, I would not have done it for a husband or a son, in a way, she's talking about what she's already done. By burying Polynices, she made a choice which cut off forever her possibility of having a husband or a son. So in her own mind, now you can imagine now, as you're saying, somebody who is in the Garden of Gethsemane of her existence, the stuff is coming up. In a sense, that's what it has cost her, a husband and children. And the deepest moment of her crisis, she is essentially saying, well, I wouldn't have done it for them anyway. That was the choice, to have a husband and children. And to, to be loyal to that, and I wasn't, I'm lo- I've been loyal to me. Comparing this to, to uh, Murder in Cathedral earlier, uh where Beckett faces the last tempter who says, Well do it for glory. Uh and he says, No, I won't do it for glory. And since Antigone may be may be saying um, she is she may be letting go of the last thing she can hold on to, and that is a uh a noble motive. A theologically noble motive. She may be saying, "I did it because I loved him." Take your theology and stuff it. Now, what she compares, the, the chorus has been going through all their stuff, trying to understand what's the back, what's the thematic, archetypal background of this. Antigone says it's Niobe. And at the bottom of 148, the daughter of Tantalus, a Phrygian maid, was doomed to a piteous death on the rock of Sypolis which embraced and imprisoned her merciless as the ivy rain and snow beat down upon her mingling with her tears. As she wasted and died, such was her story and such is the sleep that I shall go to. Now, here's what I make out of this. The story of Niobe is, Niobe is preeminently the mother. She has seven sons and seven daughters. And she is very proud of having seven sons and seven daughters. The... Uh, townspeople go to take uh, gifts to leto or latana and as they go to the altar of latana she says to them uh, hey look uh, latana's got nothing on me she's only had two children of course they were apollo and artemis but she said she's only had two i've had 14 so will not you bring your gifts right over here please and some of them do and uh, Latana does not take that. Do you know how the gods react to that sort of thing? So Latana starts picking them off one at a time. Boom, 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 boom. And there's, there's Niobe watching her children die. Okay? The tragedy of Niobe is that she watches her children die. Now imagine now the filmed version of Antigone. As she looks out, Having just put down the morning paper, where it says Creon has proclaimed that nobody better bury the body of Polynices, she puts it down and looks out over that over that beautiful Greek landscape where she's in, up in that nice little balcony, looking out and seeing the body of Polynices, and in her mind's eye she is watching her children die. She is betrothed to Hémon, and her. Chance for a normal life is going out the window, and in a way, I see it. I, I see what the the psychological background of this play is. That throughout it all, as Antigone has been having a discussion with Creon, in her mind's eye, she is watching her children die. That's what it's. Called. She she says. Her, the background image for her suffering is Niobe, the mother who watches her children die. What I see as echoed in the rest of the play is this choice between marriage and death. And marriage, by the way, after marriage for, the, for a Greek woman meant children. Down on 149, about two-thirds of the way down, she says, My father, my parents, O oh hideous shame, whom now I follow... Unwed, curse ridden. Curse ridden. The internal struggle of Antigone is that she looks out, sees the body of Polynices, realizes she has a choice between bearing Polynices and marrying Hemon and begetting children. So in a sense, by choosing that, she watches her children die. But are there any uh, extenuating circumstances that come to play on that decision? Yes. Her children will be cursed. And she knows it. So there she is, faced with a decision between marriage and death, and that is echoed in the play over and over and over again. And the death means no heirs. And she mentions that over and over again. Nobody will be there to bury me. No one left behind. And then she says Niobe is the archetypal motif. Just to give you a, just to go back, uh, actually it's forward, but the story of Niobe is ancient. Uh, Ovid has a version I want to just read to you. His story is a long story, Niobe. Latona has to kill off 14, so it takes a while. This is the last one. I'll save you the, most of it. And thus, when six by six of the, of the girls, which were the last to die, thus when six by different wounds were slain, at last the mother saw but one remain, whose body, with her own, she covered o'er, screening her wholly from the ro- with the robe she wore. Ah, uh, leave my youngest! So her pleadings run. I ask but one, my youngest, leave me one. But while she asked, the one she asked for bled. Husbands. Husband and sons and daughters, all were dead. In uttermost bereavement, sitting alone amid her grief, she turned with grief to stone. No breeze that blew disturbed her chiseled hair. Her cheeks had color, but no blood was there. Eyes fixed and staring in the grief-lined face, all as in life, of life itself, no trace. So too within... To hardened, pallid, clove, congealing tongue, the pulses ceased to move. All softness from the inward parts was gone. Only her tears, in spite of all, flowed on. And while she wept, a whirlpool wrapped her round and swept her off back to her native ground. There on a peak she sits, and water seeps out from the marble, and the statue weep. So, the image of the mother who must watch her children die. Now, re- the reason I got onto this to sort of justify it uh, mm-hmm. is I was quite amazed that Antigone, parenthesis, Sophocles, would choose powerful maternal image we talked about last week, screaming like a mother bird. Screaming like a mother bird. When its young are being plucked out of the nest. You see that? plucked out of the womb of time. That's the deepest tragedy for Antigone. This is not the modern world. This is the, the ancient Greek world, very much like the ancient Hebrew world. Just to give you a parallel for it, when Jephthah, return, Jephthah was a Hebrew chieftain, He got in trouble fighting the Ammonites. He said to Yahweh, look, you'll deliver these characters into my hands. I'll slay the first creature I meet on going home as a sacrifice to you. And it's his daughter, his only daughter. He goes home. He wins the battle. He goes home. His daughter comes out and says, hi, Daddy. And he says, oh, God. And he says, I've got to do it. And he tells his daughter, I promised Yahweh I would do this. And she says, well, all I want to do is go with my girlfriends up into the hills for two months and bewail my virginity. My virginity, not the loss of my life, but the fact that I am going to die without leaving children. And there is in the the Greek world that same sense, deep feminine sense. Two of the most potent images in this play, subtle references to the fact that Antigone is watching her children die. And that that is the deepest tragedy for her. That after all the suffering in her life, she had to die without having children. Now, I admit, I don't have to admit because you know this, that I could be dead wrong. But it's a lot more interesting. It's interesting, certainly interesting to me. And it also comes to grip with these two maternal images Niobe watching her children die. And Screaming like a mother bird, watching, watching her little ones plucked out of the nest. So I'm waiting for somebody to hire me to to direct the uh, filmed version of this. By the way, I'm, I didn't. I got a little defensive of this uh, particular interpretation. I, you know, interpretations come and go, and the play will be here forever. But I must say, not until Tuesday of this week did it suddenly dawned on me and it dawned on me when I was trying to come to grips with that disputed passage but part of the choice to do it in this disputed passage when she says I wouldn't have done it for a brother or a son what she's saying is I didn't do it for principles. I did it because I loved him and that's feminine power you see she says it came out of that and it cost me this marriage and family and so on but a, I, I get a very powerful sense of the sense of what this has cost her. See an interpretation of uh, of a more you know a more conclusive psychological thing about the opposites of the masculine and feminine. But for me, it's a it's just a huge tragedy of choice. Well, what touches me so is the is this is is to see, and, and I I saw through these passages that I've been making such heavy weather out of, but to see, to, to experience the story of a person who meets that tragic death, not with some kind of defiant, by God, spirit, but heartbroken at what it cost her. Not her life. Life, shmife. Her something deeper than life cost. And that when I, when I then I got onto that and started reading through this, it was I was, was overwhelming to me. This is the end of reflections on Sophocles' Antigone by Gil Bailey. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's Cornerstone Forum, all one word.org. Thank you for your interest in our work.